you're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. All right, and so here with Emily again this week to kind of pick up our discussion on uh, uh, the age of the earth and stuff. And we are two days away from Christmas. Merry Christmas, Emily. Merry Christmas. Emily looks way more festive if you could see her uh, than I do today. So, But I am sporting my <laughs> Efola Baptist Church shirt, so I don't feel that bad. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that ties in there somewhere. So, um, so we're yeah, we're continuing the discussion on the age of the earth. And last week, just to briefly cover, I mean, I literally... Like what I wanted to talk about last week, I thought was going to take two minutes and it took like 30 minutes. So I'm going to try not to do that today. Um, although I, I am a Baptist preacher, so I'm a little long winded. I can't really help that, I guess. Just who I am. So we talked uh, about the differences between, in general, young age creationism, old age creationism, and then basically uh, no age creationism, which I'm using for simplicity's sake. And we just talked about kind of the different, there's a couple of different nuances of views that are, that are in there. And, um, toward the end, Emily raised, raised, uh, you know, was thinking about some really good questions, you know, like, well, I mean, it, it sort of made, like the old age creationism thing sort of makes sense because science says it's this. And, and, and if the, if the Bible can like be made to line up with those things, then that seems to make sense too. And so there's some questions that have arisen there, which we're going to address sort of as we as we go along. So I think they'll kind of come up naturally in the discussion. Um, I do want to go into the question first of like, who cares about this? <laughs> because like, really, we're like, there are people dying and going to hell and we're arguing about whether the earth was 6,000 years old or whether it was four, you know, whatever, 4.5 billion years old. And do we really... You know, what What does this matter, I guess? And so I'm not a history buff by any means, but believe it or not, there is a very rich history of uh, the church having this discussion. Um, and it, it's it, it, people throughout the years have been, frankly, obsessed with the date of creation. And for the first you know, 1500 or so years of the early church, right? From the first century AD to, you know, the 15th, 16th century AD, whatever, like there, it was pretty well undisputed. I mean, you had some people who, who, who maybe would have fallen into the, I don't know, necessarily camp scientifically because we didn't have you know, 1500s, 1600s. I mean, science wasn't what it is today uh, by by any stretch. I mean, it was, you know, there were some things, but it wasn't nearly what it was today. And so there wasn't really this concept of long ages, what we would call deep time, billions or millions of years. Um, you had some people who made statements of, of well, uh, you know, uh, of not, of maybe not wanting to accept those Genesis days as literal and thinking that maybe the earth is older than 6,000 years. Some of the church fathers and things made remarks to this, uh, to this angle, but not anything definite. It was just basically a guess, you know, on their, on their part. And so even the Jewish calendar, it's like, it's like, whatever it is, it's like the year 5,700 and something on the, on the, you know, traditional Jewish calendar. Like, there was just not a dispute 
you know, people took the early chapters of Genesis pretty much at face value. God created in six days. If you added the genealogical numbers and things that you get in Genesis chapters 5 and 11, take it with we know about the rest of recorded history, you know, it's somewhere around six, six to 7,000 years, and that wasn't really disputed. Um, and so then in, the, in like the 1700s, this figure comes along, uh, and I'm doing most of this by memory, so I, uh, I did because I didn't write down notes on this part. I don't like history, and I'm doing history by memory, so this is this has the hallmarks of a train wreck. Um, right. Um, but there's a there's a book written about it though by Dr. Terry Mortensen. Um, he is a um, his PhD is in the history of geology, and so he's written a book about this that is slipping my mind. Maybe I'll remember by the time we're done recording, uh, and I can put it in the notes or whatever. Um, but uh, he's written a book about this, documenting sort of this process. And basically, you had these two characters, Lyell and, and Hutton, and then they were, you know, sort of the precursors to Darwin. You know, Darwin was really influenced by their work. And it was one of them, I think it was Lyell, Charles Lyell, who said that he was a, I think he was like a lawyer or, or something, but he was interested in geology, fascinated by it. And so he would study it. And he sort of set out to, as he, as he called it, free the science from Moses. Okay. That was the wording, the terminology that he used. Now. You know, again, as a modern Christian with a lot of history, like we we were looking back on this, there's all kinds of things we could say about that. Um, but it 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 does, if you're just kind of thinking about it, it does seem to suggest that he thought the science of the day was being to some degree influenced by what people thought about the Bible. Now, the reason that's that's telling is because. Um, the Bible hasn't changed. Our modern understanding of science has changed. Some of our modern understanding of how the Bible should be read, et cetera, has, has changed, um, for sure. But not, not so much that, that, I mean, if he, again, if he thought that we should be freeing the science from Moses, his goal was not to go reinterpret the Bible to make it work. His goal was to prove the Bible false. Okay. So that that tells you that people took what the Bible had to say about earth history seriously. That's the point I'm making. It sort of it implies that. It implies that people took that seriously. And he wanted to suggest, and he introduced basically this idea into geology of uniformitarianism. And uniformitarianism is the view that all present-day rates, uh, like like rates of radioactive decay, erosion, you know, processes that happen on the earth, things like that. Um, his view was that those things have continued, like, like they have, they were set out at the beginning of the earth. I mean, he don't, he wasn't a Christian, so I mean, he didn't believe God created. So I, I to say the words, to say the words, they were the, like this from the beginning of creation. It's actually biblical language, not, not Charles, uh, Charles I.L. language, but you know, he thought that basically if, if, if something is happening like it is in the present day, and you might have heard this, the way that he said it was the present is the key to the past. The present is the key to the past. And what he meant by that is that if you look at the, again, the rates of erosion, the radioactive decay, and thing, different processes of nature, and you extrapolate that back into the distant past, 
then you are going to get a a deep time, a long ages. You are going to get a you know geological system that produces well millions or even billions of years. And so that was sort of the first introduction to this idea of deep time. So there was Lyell, and then there was this Hutton character. I think it was maybe James Hutton, and then um, and then Charles Darwin uh, found these ideas and thought, ah, okay, well, if the Earth has been around for this long, changing geologically, then maybe this has something to tell us about how the animals, the biosphere, by all biological life, maybe this has something to tell us about their development and about how they, uh, how they came to be. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of different sp splitting hairs here that we could go down, but, it, but, you know, the basic idea to summarize at this point is Darwin kind of took that and ran with it and, and came up with a scientific, the first real scientific expression of the idea that all life is related. And that if you just rewind the clock into the past, you will find that all life stems from a, basically an LCA, a last common ancestor. And so to summarize quickly what that looks like, you have 1500 years of Christian history. And of course, thousands of years of Jewish history before that, where it was virtually uncontested. And by the way, this used to be a controversial claim. It is no longer a controversial claim. People admit this now. Um, people hostile to this view admit this now. It is no longer a controversial claim at all to say that the early church, and of course, early Jewish history, believed young earth creationism. They believed in, that was the standard belief. You had some deviation from that, but that was the standard belief, is that the earth was somewhere, you know, between six and 7,000 years old. Modern, you know, this, this geology guy comes on the scene suggests that this deep time thing, this uniformitarian uniformitarianism thing is a thing. Uh, and then Darwin comes along and gives a, a sort of a scientific expression of this idea of evolution. There were philosophical expressions of it even thousands of years ago, but that they, they again they were just philosophical. They weren't they weren't really related to anything in the in the in the sciences. Darwin sort of tried to bridge that gap and, and then and so you have people looking back at Darwin and so like modern day atheist Richard Dawkins, he's a biologist, pretty well known. Um, he's also kind of full of crap. Uh, am I allowed to say that? It's my podcast. I guess I can. He's also kind of full. Yeah, I think I can say that. He's also kind of full of it. And uh, anybody who's seen any Darwin or any uh, Dawkins stuff knows what I'm talking about. Um, but he made the statement that, uh, that Darwin, it was really the first time that you could become an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Um, it didn't, you know, he said he, he, with his introduction of a scientific, somewhat scientific theory of evolution, and, and even the modern, what's called the GTE, the general theory of evolution, differs, you know, in, in small bits from what he first proposed, uh, as we've learned more about genetics and biology, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, uh, you know, Darwin supposedly made it to where uh, now scientifically the atheist had something to to latch on to. And, and so uh, there's almost a lesson or a principle or something that I want to kind of, I don't know, like, like put out here from this. And that is that it, it's just, it, it, you just can't help but wonder 
if this is really, if some form of old age thinking is true, you just can't help but wonder why it took a geologist who wanted to detach science from the Bible to make that discovery. And and so it kind of, you know, again, you, you, as humans, I like, I, we talked about this, I think, before. You know, I really want to think the best of people. I don't like, I don't like looking at people, whether in history or or in present, in the present and thinking, you know, these people are just really out to do a bad thing, you know, to destroy things or, or whatever. And, um, but, you know, some of these people, I mean, some of these people tell us their motives. And, and I'm like, there's, that should at least be a factor considered any, anybody who's looking at considering a different view on creation from what the standard Christian and Jewish view on creation has been for millennia should at least consider when this change, when this change came about. Now there's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to debate now in, internally here because I talked about uniformitarianism, which is something that we need to talk about. I know I'm going to get to it later in the, in the science, but yeah, I want to go ahead and, um, I want to go ahead and talk about it now. And this may even, this, this may even derail us a little bit to where we have to pick up again. It might take an extra week because I go down this road, but I think this is an important road to go down. Um, okay. okay. Is that okay with you? Totally fine with me. Okay. I'm just taking Okay, that's 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 perfect. Um, any questions so far about like the history stuff? This might be a stupid question, but uh, probably not. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, when when was I know that the Bible was written over a course of time, but how long had people, you know, according to your theory, you know, if the Earth is six thousand years old. At what point was the Bible written? Mm. Like how long how long had people been around at that point? Oh yeah, um, that's a, I I, I kind of see what you're saying. So that's a yeah, that's a pretty controversial question, believe it or not. There there are sort of different opinions on this. Um, I mean, if you might be, it kind of sounds like you're asking when would the Bible um, have started to be written? Is, is something like that? Is but is that is that sort of what you're asking? Like like when did people start writing the Bible? Like when did writing come yeah, out? The reason I asked. When we were talking about, you know, them trying to prove the Bible wrong with their scientific discoveries. Yeah. And it's like, well, the Bible's never changed, is is, is what you said. Oh, yeah. So the Bible's never changed. However, I just I'm curious of when the Bible was written, like when it when it was when it okay. had started written. Yeah. So yeah. You know, because they're looking at quote sciences well before that time frame. Yeah. Um, so again, it's just the Yeah. Me- me trying to think as like a non-believer understood yeah whenever you say something that would make me like well you know sure when was the bible okay so let me clarify this is really good that was a super that was a super good and insightful question and because my words kind of confuse things a little bit so uh, i mean i guess if i wanted to be technically precise about what i meant it would it would be that the the bible has not been changed since the or not changed I mean, i'm still not wording it correctly there was a point at which the um the biblical like after the writing of revelation basically and then the the church came to recognize there was a process of the church recognizing what was scripture what wasn't that's a completely different conversation there's a point after which we don't consider things to be new special revelation from god right like we have the 66 books of the bible so it's not like the bible the book of the Bible was written over even a, you know, a period of a week or, you know, something like that, you know, uh, which I don't think right. you think that, but, but the, um, um, but as far as like 
the Bible being like like completed as far as the close of, of, of scriptural canon, you know, that's in the first few centuries AD when that recognition was um um you, you know made it like different church councils and things that got together. Um I forget the exact the exact date. And I think I meant I also meant to say the first few hundred centuries AD, our first couple hundred centuries AD. I can't I forget the exact date. Did I mention I'm bad at history? Um but so like right, so there was a point at which at which there was no you know, we're not going to say, oh, somebody wrote the book of uh, Mormon, for example, and now that's an additional book of scripture. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, like, like there's a, you know, oh, somebody just discovered this new biblical book. Like, that's, that's not a thing. And that, so that's a whole different topic. As far as like, you know, during the writing of the Bible, to answer your question, the writing, you know, the Bible was written over a period of like 1600 years by, you know, so the individual books of the Bible were written over a period of like 1600 years by around 40 different authors, you know, over three or four continents, you know. Um, so it, it's, it, God used people over the course of time to put together what we know today as the, as the document, or as the, as the document, as the, as the Bible. And these are, these are various documents, again, as they, we call, what we call the Old Testament um, would have been known just as the Hebrew Bible, Okay, the Torah. There's the the, the law, the prophets, and the writing, uh, and the writings. Um, and there's there's the the um, it's the what the Torah, the Ketuvim, and I always forget the other one. Um, would be like the Hebrew word for it or whatever. And um, so you have different like I guess almost phases of writing that are happening. Um, but as far as when people would have even like started writing, well, boy, that's really controversial because you've got some people who think that. Like the early generations of people were writing on tablets, and then those got passed down to Moses, and then Moses wrote it, like the Torah. Let's talk about the Torah, early chapters of Genesis to the first five books of the Bible, right? You even just that, you've got some people think that right they were keeping the records on tablets, and then it got passed down to Moses somehow, and then, um, and then there were some people who edited after that, living in like the Babylonian captivity or et cetera. You got some people who think that God essentially downloaded the entire first five chapters of the Bible all of 2000 years of earth history into Moses's head so that he could write it down. You've got some people who think that Moses wrote some of what we see, but that actually a lot of it was written in during the time of Babylonian captivity. You've got people who think it's called the JEPD theory. It's, it's a, it's, it's a, to me, it's a bunk theory, but there are a lot of people who believe it, mostly liberal scholars who believe that there were four primary different writers of the Torah. It's another really complex question, believe it or not. But um, I, I think, I think the, the simple answer to your question as it relates to the subject matter is after the writing of revelation, whatever that was, when, when John wrote, wrote revelation from that point after that, that's what I mean by the Bible that has not changed from then until now. And we're, and, and so they're looking at that in the 1700s and going, well, you know, th this, right. The, the actual scriptural text has not changed in any way i mean it was at, at that point it was well accepted yep this is what genesis says this is what exodus says etc cetera, etc cetera. um and so it was a it, it was not oh the bible now says this it was a the science says this um and so now we do see people looking back and saying oh well the bible says this but it means this and that's a little bit about what we talked about last week with old age stuff and, and some of the no age stuff as well um but yeah does that kind of somewhat answer your question 
It does. It okay. does. It's just, just because I, I wanted to clarify that on the whole, you know, the Bible hasn't changed. Yeah. Idea, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's good. Sometime we should talk about the, yeah, a little more of the nuance behind those things. What you'll find, um, there are, you know, out here, I'm going to rant. I, I, need, I can't do this. I don't have time. The basic thing is some people want all of their questions answered. And some people are not willing to give God any, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like God had to have done it the way that they were taught in their tradition or else. Um, and uh, like, for example, I mean, I'm fine with, like some people say Moses authored, you know, some people are, are really unhappy if you say something like people edited the Bible after, like edited the Torah after Moses, you know, wrote it initially or whatever, or wrote most of it or whatever. People have problems with that. And I don't have a problem with that. God can use Moses. God can use Emily. God can use Steve. God can use, God can use Peter. God could use anybody. Um, you know, the, do we really believe that God superintended the process of scripture coming about using whoever he would to do it? I do. I believe that he did, to me, he doesn't have to fit into you know, some, some box or whatever. I just want to go where the evidence goes, you know? And, and if the evidence says that, that, that Moses wrote the Torah, but, but there were people after him, scribes who were very careful about what they were doing. And they, they edited the Torah to update place names and things, by the way, this is, we have evidence for all of this. Then fine. I'm fine with that. I don't have to explain that away or put God in some weird box. And this is the problem when, when a lot of people first get into apologetics and stuff. It's like, you know, they want to give God the silver bullet, you know, and, or they want the Bible to have like the silver bullet answer for everything. And some of life is just being okay with questions and not understanding things and, and whatnot. And so I, um, I simultaneously, on the one hand, I want to say, yeah, we have good answers for skeptical attacks and we have good evidence to believe the Christian faith as classically and historically presented and understood throughout time. I want to say that at the same time, I want to say that I'm not God. And it is totally possible that God made this whole process happen in a way that doesn't align with even some of what I thought growing up or, or what I'm even necessarily comfortable with in some cases. And now some people try to use that argument against the young earth creationist. Oh, you're putting God in a box. You're saying he has to have created this way. That's not what I'm saying at all. When I look at this issue, I've investigated the issue. I'm open. If he wanted to create using long ages, fine. I just don't think he did. I just don't think the Bible teaches that he did. I think the Bible teaches the opposite. So that's, so I had to go where my conscience goes on that. So, all right. So let's talk about this, this thing real quick before we, before we run uh, of uniformitarianism. Um, there's a scientific, uh, there, there's more scientific stuff that we can talk about on this as it relates to radiometric dating and stuff. And we will talk about that when we get to the science portion. Um, there's actually two biblical considerations about this idea of uniformitarianism that I'd really like to sort of submit for your uh, consideration over the next week or so until we talk again, all right? That would be um, uniformitarianism, the way that it is formulated, you know, and thought about, sort of denies, in, in my opinion, I, I think I could, I think I'd want to say that it even denies creation to be honest with you now 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 Hugh Ross and people in the old earth camp they wouldn't like that they, they wouldn't like me saying that um but but it's true I I think that because because creation was supernatural uh, when 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 a divine being 
when the only thing decides to create anything else, that is a supernatural thing. He didn't use a process of science to create because science is a result. Science is a description of the laws and, and the things that govern the universe. It, it's not the thing that creates the thing. Science, the laws of the nature and stuff don't pre-exist the universe. They exist inside of the universe. So it couldn't have created the universe, right? So that, so and that, and that's a, a chief reason why I think naturalism and atheism is is bankrupt because a universe can't create itself. Um, that's not a thing. And so, so creation was a supernatural process. And so, to tr to sort of try to scientificalize, that's that's a word I just made up. Uh, to 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 scientificalize um, the actual creation event, I think is difficult. That that's one thing. Um, but even more than that, even if I granted that, even I said, okay, fine, uniformitarianism is compatible with special supernatural creation ex nihilo by God. Even if I granted that, uniformitarianism denies a global flood. Um, so if you think Genesis six through eight teaches a flood that did what the text seems to suggest it did and destroyed every living creature under the whole heavens, everything that breathed, everything that walked, everything that crawled. If, maybe, except for like fish and maybe small insects and stuff that could survive in water. If you think that, that Genesis teaches that, which I do, then you can't, you can't have uniformitarianism and this flood process because it's so catastrophic, so destructive. We'll talk about the idea a little bit when we get to the science of what's called catastrophic plate tectonics. It's basically a scientific theory of, of, of geology as it relates to the, the flood and, and the history of the earth. And you're, you're, you just can't get uniformitarianism and, and the flood for some of the scientific reasons that we'll talk about later, right? So, so, the, so trust me, that's coming. There's a scientific element to that. But for right now, biblically speaking, if you think the, the flood was global, then this uniformitarianism doesn't work. Um, and Hugh Ross, again, the leading proponent of like the old earth creationism idea with the progressive creation, that, that specific angle. Um, one of his arguments against the young earth creationist is that, and, and for this idea of uniformitarianism, is that God promises in Genesis 1 with the creation of the, of the sun, moon, and stars, et cetera. Uh, he, he, <laughs> it's kind of frustrating. He says that, that the God, and even J Jeremiah, there's a verse he uses in Jeremiah. I can't remember it off the top of my head. I'll have to pull it out for you maybe next week. There's a verse he uses in Jeremiah to teach that basically the way that, that God's creation is ordered is orderly. It's structured. It's, it's, you know, the seasons, it's repeating times. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's consistent, right? There's consistency in, um, in creation. And, and now, now again, this is, this is a concordist thing to do, but Ross actually makes a very bolder claim, even than what I just said, the way that he puts it is that the Bible teaches that the laws of physics are constant. That's the way he puts it. And I, again, I'll have to find that text, but I, I, I don't see how you can read the text that he wants to use. It's in Jeremiah. It's either Jeremiah 33 or 25 or something like that. It's one of those two. And he really, really wants to, to get the laws of physics being constant 
out of the Bible. Now, okay, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> okay, I don't think you can you can make that claim. Even if you could, the question one might ask is, okay, well, when did God promise that the earth was going to be in this constant state of, you know, seasonal activity and consistency and, 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 you know, no major disaster and destruction and things like that. Well, he didn't promise it in Genesis one. If you go look at the language of Genesis one, it never promises anything like that. He did make a promise though, along those lines. And I'm not going to lie. I was pretty proud the day I found this because I've never heard him address it. But in Genesis chapter nine, and I wrote a blog post where I laid this out as well. In Genesis chapter nine, God does make this promise to Abraham after he steps off of the ark, after just catastrophically destroying the world. So, okay. All right, Hugh, I'll give you that. Maybe the Bible does teach this consistency in creation, maybe even the laws of physics or whatever, but that promise was not made until after the flood. And so even if uniformitarianism from the time of the flood until now is true, biblically speaking, it was not necessarily true before the flood because God made no such promise before the flood. So, so just to clarify, he made the promise to Noah, correct? You said Abraham? Mm -hmm. Oh, I meant, no, I meant Moses. Noah. I meant Noah. I said Abraham. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that clarification. See, sometimes you're too smart for your own good. Uh, totally kidding. Totally kidding. Um, <laughs> totally kidding. Yes. I meant Noah. Right. He promises to Noah after Noah gets off of the ark that that he's not going to destroy the world. It's it's part of the rainbow promise sequence in the Bible. Again, it's Genesis chapter nine. Um, and yeah. So so I think if that promise is 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 there, then he made it after the flood. All right. Second biblical thing is in in Second Peter three. Second Peter three talks about scoffers in the last days, and I'm I'm very much paraphrasing and summarizing here. But essentially, what it says is that you're going to have people come in the last days, and they're going to deny three things. They're going to deny the creation, and they're going to deny the flood, and then they're going to deny, as a result of denying those other two things they're going to deny that there is any sort of coming judgment. And the way Peter frames this denial, um, he, he uses language like, they're going to come in the last day saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, um, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And they deny creation and the flood. And again, we'll deny the coming judgment. And so when you look at that, it sounds a lot like this uniformitarianism idea. So in other words, it looks like this idea of uniformitarianism is going to be this thing that causes a lot of people to reject that God has actually acted in history. Now, I'll say two things quickly about that. This is like uh, and now that I've, I'm, I'm glad that I framed the concordist versus non-concordist debate last time because that helps with this. In concordist mainstream young earth creationism, that is what they will take this passage to to say. Uh, it's a pretty hard line on this idea of of basically denying uniformitarianism. I am symp sympathetic to that. I think it's probably I, I think it's. It's probably speaking to that in some sense. 
I'm a non-concordist, so I, I, right? So I have a hard time tying a statement in the Bible directly to some sort of modern scientific construct. So, I, but because it talks about the creation and the flood, it really does seem to go along with that. Um, I, I think the point of the passage is more about, you know, they deny the creation of the flood. They deny that Jesus was who he said he was, and they deny that there's a coming judgment. Since the fathers fell asleep, there, there's no, you know, there's no, there's been no mass resurrection event or anything like that, like old school Jews used to believe and stuff. And so I think there's a theological point that's greater, but, but regardless though, because somebody like Hugh Ross is a concordist, I can just take if I want to, for the sake of argument, I can take a strict concordist view of this passage. And even if I don't believe it myself, I'm just, I can just table that and say, yeah, okay. If this passage, if, if you're allowed to say that Jeremiah is talking about the laws of physics, then I'm allowed to say that this passage is talking about uniformitarianism. And if this passage is talking about uniformitarianism and, and your laws of physics thing doesn't apply until after the flood, then I'm, I'm on pretty good ground to say that biblically uniformitarianism is not only false, but Peter thinks it's dangerous. You see what I did there? So it's a logical argument. It's called a reductio ad absurdum. It's reducing, it'd be reducing his argument to, a, you know, to absurdity. And I can, I can assume a view for the sake of argument, even if I don't think it's, it's, it's hundred percent right or, or accurate in the way it's framed. I can assume that view for the sake of argument and sort of use that against um, him. So anyway, so, th so that's how I would approach that. Uh, any questions on that uniformitarianism idea and the Bible, you know, how it all relates and right off? Well, I've got some, I've got some studying to do. For yeah, sure. um, <laughs> I gotcha. Because it, it, you, you almost seem like uniformitarianism, if, if I can even get it out, is, is, is almost, it's not necessarily, it's almost like it's, it's, it's where like a lot of Christians are moving to. Right. And so, and that's why it's so dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly right. So, right. So isn't that interesting? Again, it's just another, it's just another one of those things. Now, uh, this is going really well because as we're at the uniformitarianism discussion now, as we get into the main thrust of the issue, which is I laid out last time is that acronym for Adam, the accuracy of the biblical account, death before the fall, truly risen savior, and many scientific evidences. Uh, as we get into those things starting next week, we're going to be able to refer back to this uniformitarianism idea, both biblically and scientifically, and probably to the concordist, non-concordist idea, sort of like we did this time. So I think it's really going to frame the discussion uh, in a helpful, in a helpful way that we can, yeah, yeah, recall those, recall those ideas.